0: This message is entitled, uh, Worthwhile Ministry. Uh, One day, some years ago now, I was on my way to work at a church building in Canada, and as I drove, I saw a rescue unit truck that was parked with its emergency lights flashing in a little village I had to drive through. And then just a few miles south of that scene, I saw a racing ambulance, lights on, sirens on, speeding toward the rescue vehicle. When I saw the first rescue vehicle, I prayed for whoever was in trouble while I was still driving, prayed with my eyes open. When I saw the second vehicle careening down the road toward the first, I pulled over to the highway shoulder, stopped my car, put it in park, and I prayed again because I knew that someone's life was in jeopardy and I didn't want anyone to die. And I wanted whoever was in distress to get the proper professional medical help that they needed. Pulling over to the side of the road and stopping my car and praying for the person who was in need was worthwhile ministry that day. James 5, 19 and 20 are a call to you and me to pull over to the side of the road to park our car and to pray and to do what it takes to help a brother or a sister who is entrapped and in danger in habitual sin. So let's look at the verses, because someday if we see these verses and if we put them into practice, there will be straying and wandering believers, literally, whose lives will be spared because we have seen these verses understood these verses and done what the verses have told us to do. You know, it may seem strange to you that some who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who are under the blood of Christ, uh, experiencing the grace of God, could be judged in punishment by God for high-handed and habitual sin and be struck dead by God. But that is what the scriptures teach. You see it in many different places where Disobedient, stubborn believers have planned their own funerals before a holy God. Take Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. A husband and a wife. Things were going pretty well in the baby church. People were getting saved in large numbers. The church was praying and observing communion like we will this morning. And generally speaking, things were going well in the fledging baby church. But then something happened. Acts 5 one to eleven, But a certain man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. And the young men arose and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. And then Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they shall carry you out as well. And she fell immediately at his feet and breathed her last, and the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. And I would add, I guess so. Or take the example of the man who was sleeping with his stepmother in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 5. You know, at some point, known only to the Holy Spirit, he has the right, the Spirit of God does, to say it to any of us, that's enough of that sin. He did with Ananias and Sapphira, and he did, as we'll see in the passage, with a man who was sleeping with his own stepmother, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 5. It is actually reported that there's immorality among you, and the immorality is of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. That someone has his father's wife, and you have become arrogant and have not mourned. Instead, in order that the one who has done this deed might be removed from your midst... "'For I on my part, though absent in body, but present in the Spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. "'In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in Spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, "'I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus.'" Here's another situation where the Spirit of God looked at an ancient church in the city of Corinth, saw a Christian who was warned about the sin of sleeping with his stepmother, and he refused to repent and kept on with that uh, activity. And the Apostle Paul, writing under inspiration, says, You should excommunicate the man from the church, you should give him over to Satan for the destruction of his physical life. Sin is serious. Or another example. Take the people in Corinth who, took, who partook of the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper communion, without remembering Jesus' body and blood properly. 1 Corinthians 11 says this. It's particularly verse 30. For this reason, Many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. That's a soft way of saying we're struck dead. The people back in Corinth in that troubled church were treating the Lord's Supper more like a banquet feast than a memorial table. They were eating at that meal in excess, and they were drinking at that memorial in excess. They were looking out for number one. They were not examining their lives for unconfessed sin. They were carrying on like it was a party. And God struck some of them dead. You see, the Holy Spirit has every right, at any time, to say of a truly born-again person, who is in habitual sin, who's been warned and does not turn from the Holy Spirit has every right to say that's enough. Your time on earth is going to be shortened. You're going to go prematurely to heaven. You're no longer going to have opportunities on this earth to serve God or to glorify God, and you're going to lose reward in the coming kingdom. These are examples of believers who brought on their own funerals by poor and persistent and sinful spiritual life choices which they made. In John, 1 John rather, the end of the New Testament, 1 John chapter 5, verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask God and will give him life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. This verse is saying that there is a category of sin that if entered into, if persisted in, even despite warning, can bring upon that premature death for the true Christian. It is not a particular sin. It is not only one sin it's a category there is a category of sin known to the holy spirit unique probably to each person that can bring upon the judgment of death from heaven for a christian verse 16 again first john 5 if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death he shall ask god and god will give him life to those who commit sin not leading to death there is sin leading to death I do not say that he should make request for this. So going back to our first examples, for Ananias and Sapphira, sin leading to death was lying to the Holy Spirit. For the incestuous man in Corinth, sin that led to death for him was sleeping with his stepmother. For the communion table crashers of Corinth, sin that led to death for them was being absorbed in themselves and not properly worshiping and thanking Jesus for his sacrifice for their sins. And for you and me, the sin that leads to death could be something else. But at some point, the Holy Spirit does have the right to say that's enough. You're going home to heaven prematurely. Your opportunities to serve God on, in this life are going to be shortened. You're going to lose reward in the coming kingdom. We can thank God that 1 John five seventeen says this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. What that means is all sin is serious to God. We can be thankful that not all sin causes us him to kill us on the spot when we do it. Because there is sin that leads to death for believers, which can bring on their per- premature physical deaths, We all live on because there's sin that doesn't have that consequence every time. And God's grace and mercy keep us, and we have another day on planet Earth to glorify the one who bought us with his life's blood. It was Vance Havner, an old-time southern U.S. preacher, who said, if God dealt with people today, as he did in the days of Ananias and Sapphira, every church would need a morgue in the basement. We can praise God this morning that there is sin that does not lead to premature judgment of God death. Now, we go back to our main passage, which is James 5, verses 19 and 20, the last two verses of the book of James. And so because we know about Ananias and Sapphira, and we know about the incestuous stepson, and we know about the communion table blasphemers, and we know that there is a category of sin that leads to premature physical death of rebellious Christians, because we know all that, we bring back, we turn others from, we cover over a multitude of sins. And we do it with seriousness. Just like I pulled over to the side of the highway and stopped when I saw the racing ambulance, you and I need to intervene when we see a fellow Christian sinning in a high-handed, presumptuous, stubborn way because their physical lives may just depend on us pulling over to intervene. In verse 19 and 20, we read this. My brethren... If any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Because we know that there is a certain category of sin that the Holy Spirit can say to the Christian who persists in it with rebellion, the Holy Spirit can say, that's enough. Because we know that, we should care about wandering Christians that we see. Verse 19 indicates that moral wandering can take place in a truly believing person's life. The Greek word which is translated wander in this verse is planeo, a verb from which we derive our noun planet. The wandering in view here is willful wandering. It's intentional wandering. It's calculated wandering. It's stubborn wandering. The wandering here in view is not absent minded wandering. It's not demented wandering. It's not excusable wandering due to illness or mental impairment. You and I know that Alzheimer's is a terribly debilitating disease sometimes Alzheimer patients can wander away from their homes and the persons who love them and they go missing. That kind of wandering is not what James is talking about in this spiritual realm. Instead, James is warning and talking about wandering that takes Frank Sinatra's song as its anthem. I did it my way. James is talking about spiritual apostasy Spiritual falling away from the truth the believer believes and knows. James is talking about knowing the truth, but finding the truth inhibiting and dull and contrary to what one really wants to do. Let me give you some real-life examples from 30 years of being a pastor of persons that I believe are truly saved and yet they wandered. I think of the man who hurt his wife and kids by choosing an adulterous affair, and then he demolished his home by marrying his mistress. I think of the employee who embezzled company money to fund his own debts. I think of the person who requested the abortion, and remember, it's not always the woman who requests the abortion. I think of the individual who suicided I think of the supported missionary who went to the field to win Muslims to Jesus Christ and converted to Islam much to the horror of his wife. We need to realize this morning that true Christians can get into the most head-shaking, unbelievable wandering away from God. And none of us None of us is exempt or above any sin. So, when we see a brother or a sister in Christ, they need church leaders who will talk to them about their sin, not about them behind their back. Furthermore, When we know of a brother or sister in Christ who is wandering away in high-handed and rebellious sin, that person needs brothers and sisters in Christ who will talk to her and not about her behind her back. And so you say, Pastor, okay. The text is saying that sin is serious. It can cost a Christian its his or her life. And I'm supposed to care enough, to love enough, to intervene. How do I do that? What does that look like? Well, here's what it looks like. You go to them, you speak with them, and then there are three things you seek to do for the glory of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Number one, you bring back to truth, number two, you turn from ways of error. Number three, you cover a multitude of sins. We're going to see all three in the moments left in this message, in the, in the text. Number one, we bring back to the truth. When we see a wandering Christian, we bring them back to the truth. Verse 19, my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, we turn wanderers back to the truth. To bring someone back to the truth means to inject the Bible again into their thinking. Quite literally, it means to put an open Bible under their nose and to start reading pertinent verses to them and exhorting their obedience to those specific commands and rebuking disobedience to those commands. If a wanderer has wandered from the truth, we who love that wanderer have to bring the truth back to the wanderer. There was a case where a Christian who was a leader in his local assembly, not a pastor but an elder, got involved in an adulterous affair And over one night, he ran away with his mistress, abandoning his wife and young children. Word of this came to some of his brothers in the church who knew him well. They got in a car at 8 o'clock at night, and they drove across three state lines to where he was shacked up with the woman. And at 3.30 in the morning, they rang the doorbell until he answered the door. When he came to the door and saw the three brothers in Christ from the church he ran away from standing there, he said, what are you doing here? And they said, no, what are you doing in there? Your wife and children are waiting for you. You're coming with us. He packed his clothes and went back home with his brothers. When we see a wandering Christian, we are obliged to bring them back to the truth. Secondly, when we see a wandering Christian, we intervene properly, we turn from ways of error. First part of verse 20. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way. We turn from ways of error. Of course, largely parenting. Is this kind of a ministry parents are God's agents for turning their children from foolishness to wisdom parents are to do that both intrinsically and extrinsically let me explain that is parents are to cultivate inner motivations to righteousness in their kids and parents are to cultivate external motivators to righteousness for their kids for children The love of virtue is the proper inner motivation for doing right. The love of virtue. And the fear of punishment is the proper external motivation for doing right. But do you know what? Children who love virtue more than they fear punishment are the children who will more consistently choose right living. If the child most fears punishment without loving virtue, then any change in that child will be temporary. Let me give an example for us. Most of us drive. Most of us drive on roads that have speed limits. Intrinsically, we don't speed because we value keeping the law and being safe and arriving less stressed out and burning less gasoline. But extri- extrinsically, we don't speed because we fear the police car pulled over to the side of JFK with a radar gun. And we fear the fines that we would pay for speeding. So, what do you think will best turn a sinner from the error of his way? Intrinsically, use inner motivations. Fan into flame again the sinner's own love of virtue. Go to the sinner. Go in love and humility. Open the word of God. Read it. Point out the error of the sinner and... Encourage the sinner to love God again enough to turn from that sin. In a form of church, there was a man who was single. And really, he was spiritually advancing. He was growing in grace and the knowledge of his Lord and Savior. He was. And we found out, Beth and I found out, that he was living in sin with his girlfriend. They were not married. And so I approached him about his sin problem, but he didn't see any sin problem. He said that the two were not sinning, and they were simply saving on rent so that they could get married more quickly. So I showed him scriptures dealing with our need to flee temptation, and dealing with our need to avoid all appearance of evil. And I called him to move out, and he refused. And as I prayed for him, and as I longed for the best way to turn him from the error of his way, God showed me. This man loved to sing in our church. He was a soloist. But really, he was even a better duet singer, And the person he sang duets with was my wife. They would stand, as all special musicians do, and worship God with the song, and others would join in their worship as they would sing. And when I found out that he was living in sin and shacked up with his fiance, I said, Tom, you're not allowed to sing in church until you make this right. And my wife certainly won't be standing on the platform on a pulpit with you in sin. But three weeks later, he came to me. He said, I've confessed my sin to God, Pastor, and to my girlfriend, and I want to confess my sin to you, and I've moved out. I'm back with my parents. In time when we saw that that was legitimate repentance. We opened the door of ministry to him and my wife sang with him again. A happy ending. What do we do when someone we know is wandering in habitual sin and in danger of the Holy Spirit saying, that's enough? What do we do? Well, the proper response is that we bring back to the truth and we turn from ways of error. And third and last, we cover A multitude of sins. Verse 20. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Sins that are covered over are sins that are forgiven. The psalmist said in Psalm 32, verse 1, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. To be forgiven is to have your sins covered. To have your sins covered is to have them forgiven. Again, in Psalm 85, verse 2, the psalmist says, You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. And so, of course, only God forgives sins, but... However, God uses caring and loving Christians like us to persuade a sinning brother or a sinning sister of their need to repent and to confess their sin and to go in God's direction again. And this is why James 5 verse 20 would dare to assert He who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. We've been talking about a category of sin, a serious category of sin that's probably specific to each one of us, that the Holy Spirit is the only one who knows what that is, a category of sin that if we are warned about a certain sin in our lives, if we persist in that certain sin, if we um, are high-handed and rebellious, there is a place for the Holy Spirit to say, that is enough. You're going to heaven prematurely. No more chance on earth to serve Jesus. Lost reward in the coming kingdom. And that category of sin, the truth about that category of sin is that often it escalates. And the truth about that category of sin is often it multiplies. And therefore, in loving the Lord and in loving your sinning brother and sister enough to go to him or her, you can both spare them premature physical death and you can promote confession of many sins The result of which is the happy end of forgiveness, restored fellowship with God, and restored fellowship with people like their church. And so going back to my opening illustration, when that rescue vehicle had its lights flashing, it took me by surprise. And then when the ambulance raced by me, it took me even more by surprise. And I thought to myself, there really is a big problem here. Someone's life is actually in danger. I'm gonna pull over. I'm going to stop my car. I'm going to put it in park and I'm going to go to prayer because I don't want someone to die. My church family, when you know that God wants you to have an interpersonal ministry, you risk getting involved in a sinning believer's life for the purpose of bringing them back, turning them from, and cover over, covering over. It could be that the Lord will surprise you and let you notice a fellow Christian who's wandering from the truth. Pull over. Pray. Go and speak to the wanderer. Bring the wanderer back. Turn the wanderer from the error of the way. If the wanderer is sinning unto death, then you will spare the wanderer physical death. And you will also promote forgiveness and restored fellowship. This is worthwhile ministry. Eternally worthwhile ministry. Lord, we thank you for this warning and for this commissioning of her ministry. Give us love and courage to go to those who need to be confronted. And Lord, if we ourselves need confrontation, may we repent and stop sinning in a high-handed way. We ask this. In the name of and for the glory of your name, amen, amen.